Welcome to Trinity Rep Radio Theater, a production of Trinity Repertory Company and WRNI. Trinity Rep Radio Theater is a monthly exploration of dramatic literature featuring members of Trinity Rep's resident acting company. Today's program is titled The American Dream and features three short stories by John Cheever. I'm your host, Bob C., and joining me is Kurt Columbus, Trinity Rep's Artistic Director. Hello, Bob. Hi, Kurt. And three members of Trinity's resident acting company, Janice Duclos, Fred Sullivan Jr., and Rachel Warren. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see you, Bob. Kurt, tell us about today's program. Well, Bob, on stage at Trinity Rep right now, we have a play called, a little play that you may have heard of, (laughs) called A Raisin in the Sun. And it's one of the great masterpieces of the uh, 20th century American drama. But it's it's a play that confronts the notion of what it is to have the American dream. And so as a result, we thought we would look at a writer who always confronts the notion of the American dream in his work, and that would be John Cheever. Um, Cheever's known, of course, as the Chekhov of the suburbs, which is why he's perfect for us, um, and is most famous for stories such as The Swimmer and The 548. And most of his stories are set in um, New York and New England, we have three short short stories that we're going to share. They're from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, the Enormous Radio, The Autobiography of a Drummer, and The Worm in the Apple. And we're going to start with The Enormous Radio, which was published in The New Yorker first in 1947. We'll hear The Enormous Radio by John Cheever, featuring Janice Duclos, Fred Sullivan Jr., Rachel Warren, and Kurt Columbus on Trinity Rep Radio Theater. Jim and Irene Westcott were the kind of people who seemed to strike that satisfactory average of income, endeavor, and respectability that is reached by the statistical reports in college alumni bulletins. They were the parents of two young children. They had been married nine years. They lived on the 12th floor of an apartment house near Sutton Place. They went to the theater on an average of 10.3 times a year, and they hoped someday to live in Westchester. Irene Westcott was a pleasant, rather plain girl with soft brown hair and a wide, fine forehead upon which nothing at all had been written and in the cold weather she wore a coat of fitch skins dyed to resemble mink. You could not say that Jim Westcott looked younger than he was, but you could at least say of him that he seemed to feel younger. He wore his graying hair cut very short, he dressed in the kind of clothes his class had worn at Andover, and his manner was earnest, vehement, and intentionally naive. The Westcotts differed from their friends, their classmates, and their neighbors only in an interest they shared in serious music. They went to a great many concerts, although they seldom mentioned this to anyone, and they spent a good deal of time listening to music on the radio. Their radio was an old instrument, sensitive, unpredictable, and beyond repair. Neither of them understood the mechanics of radio or of any of the other appliances that surrounded them, and when the instrument faltered, Jim would strike the side of the cabinet with his hand. This sometimes helped. One Sunday afternoon, in the middle of a Schubert quartet, the music faded away altogether. Jim! It stopped working again. Jim struck the cabinet repeatedly, but there was no response. The Schubert was lost to them forever. I'll buy you a new radio, Irene. On Monday, when he came home from work, he told her that he had got one. 
He refused to describe it. It'll be a surprise for you when it comes. The radio was delivered at the kitchen door the following afternoon, and with the assistance of her maid and the handyman, Irene uncrated it and brought it into the living room. She was struck at once with the large gumwood cabinet. It's so ugly. Irene was proud of her living room. She had chosen its furnishings and colors as carefully as she chose her clothes, and now it seemed to her that the new radio stood among her intimate possessions like an aggressive intruder. She was confounded by the number of dials and switches on the instrument panel, and she studied them thoroughly before she put the plug into a wall socket and turned the radio on. The dials flooded with a malevolent green light, and in the distance she heard the music of a piano quintet. The quintet was in the distance for only an instant. It bore down upon her with a speed greater than light and filled the apartment with a noise of music amplified so mightily that it knocked a china ornament from a table to the floor. She rushed to the instrument and reduced the volume. The violent forces that were snared in the ugly gumwood cabinet made her uneasy. Her children came home from school then, and she took them to the park. It was not until later in the afternoon that she was able to return to the radio. The maid had given the children their suppers and was supervising their baths when Irene turned on the radio, reduced the volume, and sat down to listen to a Mozart quintet that she knew and enjoyed. The music came through clearly. Mm, this does have a much purer tone than the old one. Perhaps I could conceal the cabinet behind a sofa. But as soon as she had made her peace with the radio, the interference began. A crackling sound, like the noise of a burning powder fuse, began to accompany the singing of the strings. Beyond the music, there was a rustling that reminded Irene unpleasantly of the sea. And as the quintet progressed, these noises were joined by many others. She tried all the dials and switches, but nothing dimmed the interference. And she sat down disappointed and bewildered, and tried to trace the flight of the melody. The elevator shaft in her building ran beside the living room wall, and it was the noise of the elevator that gave her a clue to the character of the static. The rattling of the elevator cables and the opening and closing of the elevator doors were reproduced in her loudspeaker. And, realizing that the radio was sensitive to electrical currents of all sorts, she began to discern through the Mozart the ringing of telephone bells, the dialing of phones, and the lamentation of a vacuum cleaner. Is that an electric razor? By listening more carefully, she was able to distinguish doorbells, elevator bells, and wearing mixers, whose sounds had been picked up from the apartments that surrounded hers and transmitted through her loudspeaker. The powerful and ugly instrument, with its mistaken sensitivity to discord, was more than she could hope to master. So she turned the thing off and went into the nursery to see her children. When Jim Westcott came home that night, he went to the radio confidently and worked the controls. He had the same sort of experience Irene had had. A man was speaking on the station Jim had chosen, and his voice swung instantly from the distance into a force so powerful that it shook the apartment. Jim turned the volume control and reduced the voice. Then, a minute or two later, the interference began. The character of the noise had changed since Irene had tried the radio earlier. 
The last of the electric razors was being unplugged. The vacuum cleaners had all been returned to their closets, and the static reflected that change in pace that overtakes the city after the sun goes down. He fiddled with the knobs, but couldn't get rid of the noises, so he turned the radio off. What do you think? In the morning, I'll call the people who sold it to me and give them hell. The following afternoon, when Irene returned to the apartment from a luncheon date, the maid told her that a man had come and fixed the radio. Irene went into the living room before she took off her hat or her furs and tried the instrument. From the loudspeaker came a recording of the Missouri Waltz. It reminded her of the thin, scratchy music from an old-fashioned phonograph that she sometimes heard across the lake where she spent her summers. But in the background, she could hear the ringing of bells and a confusion of voices. Her children came home from school then, and she turned the radio off. When Jim came home that night, he was tired, and he took a bath and changed his clothes. Then he joined Irene in the living room. He had just turned on the radio when the maid announced dinner, so he left it on, and he and Irene went to the table. Jim was too tired to make even a pretense of sociability, so Irene's attention wandered to the music in the other room. She listened for a few moments to a Chopin prelude and then was surprised to hear a man's voice break in. Oh, for Christ's sake, Kathy, do you always have to play the piano when I get home? The music stopped abruptly. It's the only chance I have. I'm at the office all day. So am I. The man added something obscene about an upright piano and slammed a door. The passionate and melancholy music began again. Jim, did you hear that? What? Jim was eating his dessert. The radio. A man said something while the music was going on. Something dirty. That's probably a play. I don't think it's a play. They left the table and took their coffee into the living room. Irene asked Jim to try another station. He turned the knob and heard a man say, Have you seen my garters? Button me up. Have you seen my garters? Just button me up and I'll find your garters. Jim shifted to another station. I wish you wouldn't leave apple cores in the ashtrays. I hate the smell. This is strange. Is it? Jim turned the knob again. On the coast of the Coromandel, where the early pumpkins blow, in the middle of the woods lived the Yongi Bongi Bo. My God! Two old chairs, That's the sweetest candle, and one old judge without a handle. These were all his. Turn that thing off! Goods. Maybe they can hear us. Jim switched the radio off. That was Miss Armstrong, the Sweeney's nurse. She must be reading to the little girl. They live in 17B. I've talked with Miss Armstrong in the park. I know her voice very well. We must be getting other people's apartments. Oh, that's impossible. Well, that was the Sweeney's nurse. I know her voice. I know it very well. I'm wondering if they can hear us. Jim turned the switch, first from a distance and then nearer and nearer, as if borne on the wind, came the pure accents of the Sweeney's nurse again. Lady Jingly, Lady Jingly, sitting where the pumpkins blow, will you come and be my wife, said the Yongi Bongi Bo. Hello! Jim said it directly into the speaker. I'm tired of living singly on this coast so wild and shingly. Well, I I'm guess weary she can't hear life. us. If you'll come and be my wife, quite serene would be Try my Try something life. else. 
Jim turned to another station, and the living room was filled with the uproar of a cocktail party that had overshot its mark. Someone was playing the piano and singing the Whiffenpoof song, and the voices that surrounded the piano were vehement and happy. Eat some more sandwiches! <laughs> there were screams of laughter, and a dish of some sort crashed to the floor. Those must be the Fullers in 11E. I knew they were giving a party this afternoon. I saw her in the liquor store. Isn't this too divine? Try something else. See if you can get those people in 18C. The Westcots overheard that evening a monologue on salmon fishing in Canada, a bridge game, running comments on home movies of what had apparently been a fortnight at Sea Island, and a bitter family quarrel about an overdraft at the bank. They turned off their radio at midnight and went to bed, weak with laughter. Sometime in the night, their son began to call for a glass of water, and Irene got one and took it to his room. It was very early. All the lights in the neighborhood were extinguished, and from the boy's window she could see the empty street. She went into the living room and tried the radio. Oh, Are you all right, oh. darling? <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm all right, Charlie. I guess. But you know, I don't feel like myself anymore. Sometimes there are about 15 or 20 minutes in the week when I feel like myself. I don't like to go to another doctor because the doctor's bills are so awful already. But I, I just don't feel like myself, Charlie. I just never feel like myself. They were not young, Irene thought. The restrained melancholy of the dialogue and the draft from the bedroom window made her shiver and she went back to bed. The following morning, Irene cooked breakfast for the family. The maid didn't come up from her room in the basement until ten, braided her daughter's hair, and waited at the door until her children and her husband had been carried away in the elevator. Then she went into the living room and tried the radio. I don't want to go to school. I hate you school. You will go to school. We paid $800 to get you into that school, and you'll go if it kills you. The next number on the dial produced the worn record of the Missouri Waltz. Irene shifted the control and invaded the privacy of several breakfast tables. She overheard demonstrations of indigestion, carnal love, abysmal vanity, faith, and despair. Irene's life was nearly as simple and sheltered as it appeared to be, and the forthright and sometimes brutal language that came from the loudspeaker that morning astonished and troubled her. She continued to listen until her maid came in. Then she turned off the radio quickly, since, she realized, this insight was a furtive one. Irene had a luncheon date with a friend that day, and she left her apartment at a little after twelve. There were a number of women in the elevator when it stopped at her floor. She stared at their handsome and impassive faces, their furs and the cloth flowers in their hats, and wondered... Which one of them has been to Sea Island? Which one has overdrawn her bank account? The elevator stopped at the tenth floor, and a woman with a pair of Sky Terriers joined them. Her hair was rigged high on her head, and she wore a mink cape. She was humming the Missouri Waltz. Irene had two martinis at lunch, 
and she looked searchingly at her friend and wondered what her secrets were. They had intended to go shopping after lunch, but Irene excused herself and went home. She told the maid that she was not to be disturbed. Then she went into the living room, closed the doors, and switched on the radio. She heard, in the course of the afternoon, the halting conversation of a woman entertaining her aunt, the hysterical conclusion of a luncheon party, and a hostess briefing her maid about some cocktail guests. Don't give the best scotch to anyone who hasn't white hair. See if you can get rid of that liver paste before you pass those hot things. And could you lend me five dollars? I want to tip the elevator man. As the afternoon waned, the conversations increased in intensity. She heard the arrival of cocktail guests and the return of children and businessmen from their schools and offices. Hey, I found a good-sized diamond on the bathroom floor this morning. It must have fallen out of that bracelet Mrs. Dunson was wearing last night. We'll sell it. Take it down to the jeweler on Madison Avenue and sell it. Mrs. Dunstan won't know the difference, and we could use a couple of hundred bucks. Yeah. Oranges and lemons, say the bells of St. Clement's. Halfpence and farthings, say the bells of St. Martin's. When will you pay me, say the bells at Old Bailey. It's not a hat. It's not a hat. It's a love affair. That's what Walter Floral said. He said, it's not a hat. It's a love affair. <laughs> Talk to somebody, for Christ's sake, honey, talk to somebody. If she catches you standing here not talking to anybody, she'll take us off her invitation list, and I love these parties. The Westcotts were going out for dinner that night, and when Jim came home, Irene was dressing. She seemed sad and vague, and he brought her a drink. They were dining with friends in the neighborhood, and they walked to where they were going. The sky was broad and filled with light. It was one of those splendid spring evenings that excite memory and desire, and the air that touched their hands and faces felt very soft. A Salvation Army band was on the corner playing Jesus is Sweeter. Irene drew on her husband's arm and held him there for a minute to hear the music. They're really such nice people, aren't they? They have such nice faces. Actually... They're so much nicer than a lot of the people we know. She took a bill from her purse and walked over and dropped it into the tambourine. There was in her face, when she returned to her husband, a look of radiant melancholy that he was not familiar with. And her conduct at the dinner party that night seemed strange to him, too. She interrupted her hostess rudely, Jim thought and stared at the people across the table from her with an intensity for which she would have punished their children. It was still mild when they walked home from the party, and Irene looked up at the spring stars. How far that little candle throws its beams. So shines a good deed in a naughty world. She waited that night until Jim had fallen asleep, and then went into the living room and turned on the radio. The next night, Jim came home at about six. He had taken off his hat and was taking off his coat when Irene ran into the hall. Her face was shining with tears and her hair was disordered. Go up to 16C, Jim. Don't take off your coat. Mr. Osborne's beating his wife. They've been quarreling since four o'clock and now he's hitting her. Go up there and stop him. From the radio in the living room, Jim heard screams, obscenities, and thuds. He strode into the living room and turned the switch. You know you don't have to listen to this sort of thing. It's indecent. It's like looking in windows. You can turn it off. Oh, it's so horrible. 
It's so dreadful. I've been listening all day, and it's so depressing. Well, if it's so depressing, why do you listen to it? I bought this damn radio to give you some pleasure. I paid a great deal of money for it. I thought it might make you happy. I wanted to make you don't, happy. Don't, don't, don't quarrel with me. All the others have been quarreling all day. Everybody's been quarreling. They're all worried about money. Mrs. Hutchinson's mother is dying of cancer in Florida, and they don't have enough money to send her to the Mayo Clinic. At least Mr. Hutchinson says they don't have enough money. And, and some woman in this building is having an affair with the handyman, with that hideous handyman. It's too disgusting. And Mrs. Melville has heart trouble, and Mr. Hendricks is going to lose his job in April, and Mrs. Hendricks is horrible, horrible about the whole thing. And that girl who plays the Missouri Waltz is a whore, a common whore. And the elevator man has tuberculosis, and Mr. Osborne has been beating Mrs. Osborne. Well, why do you have to listen? Why do you have to listen to this stuff if it makes you oh, so don't, miserable? Don't, 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 Life is too terrible, too sordid and awful. But we've never been like that. Have we, darling? Have we? I mean, we've always been good and decent and loving to one another, haven't we? And we have two children, two beautiful children. Our lives aren't sordid, are they, darling? Are they? We're happy, aren't we, darling? We're happy, aren't we? Of course we're happy. Of course we're happy. I'll have that damned radio fixed or taken away tomorrow. Oh, my poor girl. You love me, don't you? And we're not hypercritical or worried about money or dishonest, are we? No, darling. A man came in the morning and fixed the radio. Irene turned it on cautiously and was happy to hear a California wine commercial and a recording of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, including Schiller's Ode to Joy. She kept the radio on all day, and nothing untoward came from the speaker. A Spanish suite was being played when Jim came home. Is everything all right? His face was pale, she thought. They had some cocktails and went into dinner to the anvil chorus from Il Travatore. This was followed by Debussy's La Mer. I paid the bill for the radio today. It cost $400. I hope you'll get some enjoyment out of it. Oh, I'm sure I will. $400 is a good deal more than I could afford. Wanted to get something that you'd enjoy. It's the last extravagance we'll be able to indulge in this year. I see that you haven't paid your clothing bills yet. I saw them on your dressing table. He looked directly at her. Why did you tell me you'd pay them? Why did you lie to me? I just didn't want you to worry, Jim. She drank some water. I'll be able to pay, pay my bills out of this month's allowance. There were the slip covers last month and that party. You've got to learn to handle the money I give you a little bit more intelligently, Irene. You've got to understand that we won't have as much money this year as we had last. Had a very sobering talk with Mitchell today. No one is buying anything. We're spending all our time promoting new issues, and you know how long that takes. I'm not getting any younger, you know. I'm 37. My hair will be gray next year. Haven't done as well as I'd hoped to do. And I don't suppose things will get any better. Yes, dear. we got to start cutting down. We've got to think of the children. To be perfectly frank with you, I worry about money a great deal. I'm not at all sure of the future. No one is. If anything should happen to me, there's the insurance, but that wouldn't go very far today. I've worked awfully hard to give you and the children a comfortable life. 
Don't like to see all of my energies, all of my youth, wasted in fur coats and radios and slip please, covers. Please, Jim, please. They'll hear us. Who'll hear us? The radio. Oh, I am sick. I'm sick to death of your apprehensiveness. The radio can't hear us. Nobody can hear us. And what if they can hear us? Who cares? Irene got up from the table and went into the living room. Jim went to the door and shouted at her from there. Why are you so Christly all of a sudden? What's turned you overnight into a convent girl? You stole your mother's jewelry before they probated her will. You never gave your sister a cent of that money that was intended for her, not even when she needed it. Where was all your piety and your virtue when you went to that abortionist? I'll never forget how cool you were. You packed your bag and went off to have that child murdered as if you were going to Nassau. And if you had any reasons, if you had any good reasons... Irene stood for a minute before the hideous cabinet, disgraced and sickened. But she held her hand on the switch before she extinguished the music and the voices, hoping that the instrument might speak to her kindly, that she might hear the Sweeney's nurse. Jim continued to shout at her from the door... The voice on the radio was suave and non-committal. An early morning railroad disaster in Tokyo has killed 29 people. A fire in a Catholic hospital near Buffalo for the care of blind children was extinguished early this morning by nuns. The temperature is 47. The humidity is 89%. The Enormous Radio by John Cheever. Featuring Janice Duclos, Fred Sullivan Jr., Rachel Warren, and Kurt Columbus here on Trinity Rep Radio Theater. And Bob C. as a radio yes. announcer at the very end. That was <laughs> yes. one of our good. little gifts. Dream Difficult role. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kurt, what, a, what a, an amazing story. Oh, my gosh. Bob, we, you know, um, this is the remarkable thing about Cheever is that he's always sort of tricking you into going along with him in these stories, isn't he? I mean, he, you, he mm. seems to be writing this twilight zone gentle science fiction thing and it turns into this ringing condemnation uh, I, I just i mean it's kind of astonishing isn't it that poor couple oh. with well actually she she really was sitting in judgment yeah of people and uh, really got her comeuppance and all i could think of was oh can you imagine if someone else is listening to a radio somewhere and listening to his tirade against his wife oh my Mm. Just so vicious. And mm. she, she does, I mean, she gets her comeuppance, but she also undergoes this incredible transformation, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. I mean, yes. And at first, it's so open. much fun for them to yeah. eavesdrop, and they're laughing. They're going to bed laughing, listening. And then they start eavesdropping on the human condition, especially her. Right. And mm -hmm. there's such a price. I find it, I mean, I find this connection to kind of reality TV that we have now. Mm -hmm. You know, we like to look in at all these crazy people who are nothing at all like us, you know. At first there's that distancing and then this need of hers. We're not like that, are we? We're not like that. But then I find interesting, you know, the point at which you intervene, you know, that um, she wants him to intervene in the case of Mrs. Osborne who's being beaten. And, right. and I think, you know. And the husband shuts it off. Yeah, really yeah, that, that's none reaction. of our business. I mean, it's... Um... Yeah, when do you step outside of yourself and move and, and move into consideration of another person for real? Not just yeah. not just in the observation of them, but in the real consideration of them. Yeah. And I love that he sticks at the very end, that radio announcer, with all of the world disasters. Because, you know, that that's the news that we listen to and that, that you my friend read every day yeah. right and right. and we and we we look at that in a kind of 
detached manner and it really has Mm -hmm. it really does have human price when you start Mm -hmm. to empathize it opens all kinds of doors it means you have a responsibility and um it's it's really interesting. I said the well, story while happens. we were working on it, that there was this kind of distrust of technology built into right. it, and that we all have cell phones in our pockets, and who's able, <laughs> <laughs> who's able to listen to everything we say whenever they want. To. Yeah, I know. Isn't that a scary <laughs> thought? Much more comfortable about that now. So we're going to go next to a story, Bob. That it, well, we'll talk afterwards about how, just how autobiographical uh, it is, but it's called the autobiography of a drummer. Um, it's from the uh, New Republic in 1935, and we should uh, let our audience know that the term drummer in the early part of the 20th century was an affectionate term for a salesman. Well, let's hear the autobiography of a drummer by John Cheever, read by Fred Sullivan, Jr., here on Trinity Rep Radio Theater. I was born in Boston in 1869. My family had lived in Boston and had been schoolmasters and shipmasters there ever since anyone could remember. We were poor, and my mother was a widow. She ran a boarding house. My other brother and my sister worked, and I prepared to go to work as soon as I had finished grammar school. I decided to go into the shoe business, and I decided to be a commercial traveler. I wanted to be a commercial traveler as other men want to be doctors and generals and presidents. When I was 12 years old, I left school, got a job as an office boy in a big boot-and-shoe firm. My salary for the first year was $100. When I was promoted to an entry clerk, my salary for the next year was $200. The jobs were not easy to get then, and I had to work hard to hold my job. When I went to work, the streets were empty, and when I came home from work, the streets were dark and empty. Finally, I got a chance to learn the construction end of the business at a shoe factory in Lynn. I went there and lived in a cheap boarding house and learned how shoes were made. I still know how shoes are made. I can tell the price and sometimes the manufacture of nearly every pair of shoes I see. Although sometimes it makes me sick to look at them, they're so cheap. Well, I worked there for five years, and in 1891 my salary had grown to $700. That was the year I was given my first chance to sell on the road. I will never forget that as long as I live. I took a train from Boston to New York and from New York to Baltimore. I like to travel in trains. Whenever I've spent my vacations in the country, I walk down to the depot each day to see the one train come through. I had a new suit and a new grip and a sample case and a new pair of shoes. The shoes hurt like hell. I've never worn new shoes on a trip since then. My wallet was full of expense money. I like money, too. Whenever I have money in my pocket, whenever I'm taking a train for another city, it always seems as though my life were beginning. When I got on that train, it seemed as if my life were beginning. That time I went down to Baltimore, as I've said. Came into Baltimore late one afternoon. Took a sample room at the Carrollton Hotel. There was running water in the room, but no bath. The rates were $4 a day, including four big meals if you wanted them. The man who took your hat at the entrance of the dining room, I remember, never gave you a check, but he always returned the right hat to each guest. A ten-cent tip was plenty. The waiters were courteous and distinguished-looking. The dining room was on the second floor. I stayed there two days, and I made enough to cover my expenses and salary at a little under the estimated selling cost of the home office. 
When I got back, the boss congratulated me. That was my first success. And that was the beginning of a lot of success. My mother had since died, and my brother and sister had married. Didn't see much of my mother at the end of her life. I've always regretted this. Didn't have much interest in what my brother and sister were doing. I had my own life. Kept me busy all the time. Every sign I looked at, every color and shape I saw, and even the rain and the snow reminded me of sales talk and shoes. I began to get a reputation. I worked with that firm until 1894, and then I had a better offer out in Syracuse, so I went out there. I was making $3,000 a year then. I always traveled by the fastest trains, and I had all of my clothes made by a good tailor, and I stayed in expensive hotels. I had a lot of friends and a lot of women. The time went quickly. My salary grew larger by $1,000 every year. Those years on the road were the best years, and they didn't seem to have any end. I often sold two carloads of shoes over a glass of whiskey. Half of the time I had more money than I knew what to do with it. I was successful. I was more successful than I had ever imagined I would be, even when I was 12 years old. I spent all of those years in trains and clubs and hotels. My territory was changed at intervals so that at one time or another I have covered every section of the United States. I know the United States, and I love the United States. I can repeat the names of its towns now in hundreds, like the names of women. And I know the hotels and the timetables, and even its train smoke smells sweet to me. I had ten suits of clothing, twenty pairs of shoes, and two sailboats which I kept in Boston and raced whenever I was in that city. I gambled on the horses at the big tracks and played Canfield and craps and roulette. I was a mason and an honorary member of the Elks, and I had two large insurance premiums. My sales record varied as conditions changed, but my income stayed close to 10000 It was down on some seasons and way up on others. Droughts, heavy rains, fashions, deaths... Scraps between partners all had their effects on the business, but it was fundamentally the same business I had been learning since I was 12 years old. If you lost one customer, you could always get another. Buying was done by individuals for individual firms. The shoes I sold were expensive and beautiful. The business also had a seasonal lift because men wore boots in the winter and Oxfords in the summer, and nobody ever wore Oxfords in the winter if they did. They were crazy. In 1925, my salary began to decrease, going from 10000 to 8000 I was working for a firm in Rockland then with my headquarters at the Hotel Statler in Detroit. At the end of that year, the firm went out of business. They were beginning to feel the trend in fashion towards inexpensive shoes. And they were wise to get out of it when they did, not hang around like the rest of us suckers. At the beginning of the next year, I went on the road for Furman Lynn, but they liquidated after I had been with them just nine months. All of the wise men were getting out of the business and forgetting about it. But I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't forget it. I was 57 years old. I was growing old. I couldn't remember anything but trains and hotels and shoes. After that, I tried to find another firm that manufactured the kind of shoes I was used to handling, but I couldn't find one. They were all selling out or liquidating. Finally, I went on the road selling cheap shoes for a firm in Weymouth, Massachusetts. 
This was the first time in my life that I had ever sold cheap shoes, and I hated to do it. You had to sell a thousand pairs to make what you could make on a hundred pairs in the old days. My sales hardly covered my commission and salary and expenses, and I worked hard. And I sold a lot of shoes, but I couldn't make any profit. It was like trying to stop it from raining with my two hands. In those last years, I never made more than $3,000. After that, all of my trips went in the red. Methods of doing business had changed, faster than I could change. Chain stores and stores owned by manufacturers took the place of stores owned by individuals. Cheap shoes took the place of expensive shoes. Railway fares went up, hotel rates didn't get any lower. The few independent dealers who remained did not buy enough to pay the expenses of selling them. Hand-to-chin buying, we call it. On my 62nd birthday, I was without work, and I have not worked since. I'm growing old. My insurance policy has lapsed. My money's gone. My brother and my sister are dead. My friends are dead. The world that I know how to walk and talk and earn a living in is gone. The sound of the traffic below the window of this furnished room reminds me of that. We have been forgotten. Everything we know is useless. But when I think about the days on the road and about what I have done what has been done to me, I hardly ever think about it with any bitterness. We have been forgotten, like old telephone books and almanacs and gas lights and those big yellow houses with cornices and cupolas that they used to build. That's all there is to it. Although sometimes I feel as if my life had been a total loss. I feel it in the morning sometimes when I'm shaving. I get sick, as if I'd eaten something that didn't agree with me and I have to put down the razor and support myself against the wall. We've been listening to the Autobiography of a Drummer by John Cheever, read by Fred Sullivan, Jr., here on Trinity Rep Radio Theater. Uh, Kurt, how autobiographical is this story? <laughs> well, I'm still, I'm just getting over Freddie's reading. It's so <laughs> gorgeous. Um, it's yeah. extremely autobiographical. Actually, Bob um, Cheever's father lost his job as a salesman during the Great Depression, and so there's a there's a lot of stuff about his dad that's in this story. And you you, you can, said he was a shoe salesman in Massachusetts. Yeah, in Mass in Quincy, Massachusetts, as a matter of fact. Yeah. What's remarkable is that Cheever wrote this story when he was 23 years old, mm. um, and it, it's it's got a, a different sensibility than Cheever's later stories. It's much more earnest and direct, and has a a, a kind of heart to it. Uh, that, that's that's mm. the heart of a young man. It's really beautiful, mm. and I have to say, Fred, just the reading, the the way that you guys attack this with a kind of gentle humor instead of going for the the self-loathing and the darkness, but instead for the... This is a guy who's just talking. Mm. He's just mm -hmm. talking. He's one of those guys you'd meet in a bar or a diner or something, and he'd tell you his story. And, and it, Janice was talking about the braggadocio, the kind of... And so I was going, oh, it's just the other side of Harold Hill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is. It's tough on the road. <laughs> but the time passing and the... You know, the, I love the, the shift from individual to to uh, cheap manufacture. You yeah. know, it's just like, yeah. it's like a revolution and yeah. way of thinking and way of producing something and mass. Uh, yeah, he has not. a real pride in 
in what uh, he did, you yeah. know, and that's what he's hanging on to because God knows he sacrificed his all his familial ties. You know, he made the choice to do this, something he was proud of, and now it's all gone. When he says everything we know is useless right. yeah. in this world. It's just, I mean, he, he's creating such a profound metaphor for America, if right. you will, yep. and this notion of progress. Talk about the American dream. Talk about the really, American dream. He really did make it his identity. You know, mm-hmm. since I was 12 years old, I wanted to do this thing. Mm-hmm. People talk about that way. You know, I mean, I can only personalize it by saying I wanted to be a stage actor right. from mm-hmm. the time that I was a little boy. And people go, oh, you don't want to go to TV and movies? And it's like, oh, you want to do live theater? What's yeah. right? <laughs> I want to do it's this not thing. Not time anymore. Yeah. <laughs> the handmade thing, but it's yeah, really, really cool. Right. And you know, although the story is eighty years old, it resonates so much today oh. because oh. right in that, it's a microcosm really of what's happened. People, you know, they've worked for a local company. Suddenly, yeah. it's bought by a larger right. company, and that's bought yeah. by a larger company. And it's all there in that story written in 1935. But doesn't that really speak to this notion of American dream? It, it's Absolutely. it's a constant shifting sand. It's a constant sense that, you know, we embrace progress. We embrace moving forward in the future and new technology. And, and the shifting sand sort of erases the thing that, that, that was and that, that, that may have really profound meaning, but then it's just gone. And then, and then the fact that you have so much faith in progress and a rosy future that when things are going well, you think it will last forever. He didn't save anything. He blew all his money. I mean, there was a time when he was doing really, really well and was not prepared for the future. I was going to the casinos. What's wrong with that? I was living fast. Lots of women. (laughs) He would never do that, would we? (laughs) (laughs) Bob, we're going to move on to our next story. It's called The Worm in the Apple, and it's from the late 1950s. It's another view of... Um, America's obsession with our neighbors, and this time the setting is suburbia. This is a family which is a little bit too perfect to be true. Let's hear The Worm in the Apple by John Cheever, read by Janice Duclos. The Crutchmans were so very, very happy, and so temperate in all their habits, and so pleased with everything that came their way, that one was bound to suspect a worm in their rosy apple, and that the extraordinary rosiness of the fruit was only meant to conceal the gravity and depth of the infection. Their house, for instance, on Hill Street, with all those big glass windows, who but someone suffering from a guilt complex would want so much light to pour into their rooms? And all the wall-to-wall carpeting, as if an inch of bare floor there was none, would touch on some deep memory of unrequition and loneliness." and there was a certain necrophilic ardor to their gardening. Why be so intense about digging holes and planting seeds and watching them come up? Why this morbid concern with the earth? Helen was a pretty woman, with that striking pallor you so often find in nymphomaniacs. Larry was a big man who used to garden without a shirt, which may have shown a tendency to infantile exhibitionism. They moved happily out to Shady Hill after the war. Larry had served in the Navy. They had two happy children, Rachel and Tom. But there were already some clouds on their horizon. Larry's ship had been sunk in the war, and he spent four days on a raft in the Mediterranean. And surely this experience would make him skeptical about the comforts and songbirds of Shady Hill and leave him with some racking nightmares. But what was perhaps more serious was the fact that Helen was rich. She was the only daughter of old Charlie Simpson, 
one of the last of the industrial buccaneers who had left her with a larger income than Larry would ever take away from his job at Melcher and Faw. The dangers in this situation are well known. Since Larry did not have to make a living, since he lacked any incentive, he might take it easy, spend too much time on the golf links, and always have a glass in his hand. Helen would confuse financial with emotional independence and damage the delicate balances within their marriage. But Larry seemed to have no nightmares, and Helen spread her income among the charities and lived a comfortable but a modest life. Larry went to his job each morning with such enthusiasm that you might think he was trying to escape from something. His participation in the life of the community was so vigorous that he must have been left with almost no time for self-examination. He was everywhere. He was at the communion rail, the 50-yard line. He played the oboe with the chamber music club, drove the fire truck, served on the school board, and rode the 803 into New York every morning. What was the sorrow that drove him? He may have wanted a larger family. Why did they only have two children? Why not three or four? Was there perhaps some breakdown in their relationship after the birth of Tom? Rachel, the oldest, was terribly fat when she was a girl and quite aggressive in a mercenary way. Every spring she would drag an old dressing table out of the garage and set it up on the sidewalk with a sign saying, Fresh Lemonade, 15 cents. Tom had pneumonia when he was six and nearly died but he recovered and there were no visible complications. The children may have felt rebellious about the conformity of their parents, for they were exacting conformists. Two cars? Yes. Did they go to church? Every single Sunday they got to their knees and prayed with ardor. Clothing? They couldn't have been more punctilious in their observance of the sumptuary laws. Book clubs, local art and music lover associations, athletics, and cards, they were up to their necks in everything. But if the children were rebellious, they concealed their rebellion and seemed happily to love their parents and happily to be loved in return. But perhaps there was in this love the ruefulness of some deep disappointment. Perhaps he was impotent. Perhaps she was frigid, but hardly with that power. Everyone in the community with wandering hands had given them both a try, but they had all been put off. What was the source of this constancy? Were they frightened? Were they prudish? Were they monogamous? What was at the bottom of this appearance of happiness? As their children grew, one might look to them for the worm in the apple. They would be rich, they would inherit Helen's fortune, and we might see here, moving over them, the shadow that so often falls upon children who can count on a lifetime of financial security. And anyhow, Helen loved her son too much. She bought him everything he wanted, driving him to dancing school in his first blue serge suit. She was so entranced by the manly figure he cut as he climbed the stairs that she drove the car straight into an elm tree. Such an infatuation was bound to lead to trouble, and if she favored her son, she was bound to discriminate against her daughter. Listen to her. Rachel's feet, she says, are immense, simply immense. I can never get shoes for her. Now perhaps we see the worm. 
Like most beautiful women, she is jealous. She is jealous of her own daughter. She cannot brook competition. She will dress the girl in hideous clothing, have her hair curled in some unbecoming way, and keep talking about the size of her feet until the poor girl will refuse to go to the dances, or if she is forced to go, she will sulk in the ladies' room, staring at her monstrous feet. She will become so wretched and so lonely that in order to express herself... She will fall in love with an unstable poet and fly with him to Rome, where they will live out a miserable and boozy exile. But when the girl enters the room, she is pretty and prettily dressed, and she smiles at her mother with perfect love. Her feet are quite large, to be sure, but so is her front. Perhaps we should look to the sun to find our trouble. And there is trouble. He fails his junior year in high school and has to repeat, and as a result of having to repeat, he feels alienated from the members of his class and his put, by chance, at a desk next to Carrie Witchell, who is the most conspicuous dish in Shady Hill. Everyone knows about the Witchells and their pretty high-spirited daughter. They drink too much and live in one of those frame houses in Maple Dell. The girl is really beautiful, and everyone knows how her shrewd old parents are planning to climb out of Mapledell on the strength of her white, white skin. What a perfect situation. They will know about Helen's wealth. In the darkness of their bedroom, they will calculate the settlement they can demand, and in the malodorous kitchen where they take all their meals, they will tell their pretty daughter to let the boy go as far as he wants. But Tom fell out of love with Carrie as swiftly as he fell into it, and after that he fell in love with Karen Strawbridge and Susie Morris and Anna Mackin, and you might think he was unstable, but in his second year in college he announced his engagement to Elizabeth Trustman, and they were married after his graduation, and since he then had to serve his time in the Army, she followed him to his post in Germany, where they studied and learned the language and befriended the people and were a credit to their country. Rachel's way was not so easy. When she lost her fat, she became very pretty and quite fast. She smoked and drank and probably fornicated, and the abyss that opens up before a pretty and an intemperate young woman is unfathomable. What but chance was there to keep her from ending up a hostess at a Times Square dance hall? And what would her poor father think, seeing the face of his daughter, her breast lightly covered with gauze, staring mutely at him on a rainy morning from one of those showcases? What she did was to fall in love with the son of the Fockerson's German gardener. He had come with his family to the United States on the displaced persons quota after the war. His name was Eric Reiner, and to be fair about it, he was an exceptional young man who looked on the United States as a truly new world. The Crutchmans must have been sad about Rachel's choice, not to say heartbroken, but they concealed their feelings. The Reiners did not. This hard-working German couple thought the marriage hopeless and improper. At one point, the father beat his son over the head with a stick of firewood. But the young couple continued to see each other, and presently they eloped. They had to. Rachel was three months pregnant. Eric was then a freshman at Tufts, where he had a scholarship. Helen's money came in handy here. She was able to rent an apartment in Boston for the young couple and pay their expenses. That their first grandchild was premature did not seem to bother the Crutchmans. When Eric graduated from college, he got a fellowship at MIT and took his Ph.D. in physics 
and was taken on as an associate in the department. He could have gone into industry at a higher salary, but he liked to teach, and Rachel was happy in Cambridge, where they remained. With their own dear children gone away, the Crutchmans might be expected to suffer the celebrated spiritual destitution of their age and their kind. The worm in the apple would at last be laid bare, although watching this charming couple as they entertained their friends or read the books they enjoyed, one might wonder if the worm was not in the eye of the observer who, through timidity or moral cowardice, could not embrace the broad range of their natural enthusiasms and would not grant that, while Larry played neither Bach nor football very well, his pleasure in both was genuine. You might at least expect to see in them the usual destructiveness of time, but either through luck or as a result of their temperate and healthy lives, they had lost neither their teeth nor their hair. The touchstone of their euphoria remained potent, and while Larry gave up the fire truck, he could still be seen at the communion rail, the 50-yard line, the 803, and the chamber music club, and through the prudence and shrewdness of Helen's broker, they got richer and richer and richer and lived happily, 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 happily. The Worm in the Apple by John Cheever, read by Janice Duclos here on Trinity Rep Radio <laughs> Theater. Oh, my gosh. That's, so, that's such a great story um, because it really is all in the eye of the beholder, right? It's the point of view of the story that makes the story. Do we really want to hear a story about happy people? No. <laughs> no. No, in fact, uh, isn't that, that's the famous line, first line from Anna Karenina. Tolstoy says, um, all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And then proceeds to tell the stories of unhappy families for 800 pages. You know, so. <laughs> These people tend to deal with crisis, though, very functionally. And, like, yeah. just when you scratch it around looking for the yeah. kind of sinister or dysfunctional uh, quality, they seem to rise above it and they're perfectly fine. <laughs> and they're, yeah. they're just human, you know. Well, and that's what's, Except flaws. It's so There's great. nothing to gossip about. No, and that's what's so great is it's a whole story of gossip about people about which gossip is impossible, right? Well, I think the phrase, the Crutchmans were so very, very happy that we cannot accept that not being ironic. Right. Yeah. That, <laughs> right? That, that, oh, there, there has to be something. No one is yeah. very, very happy. That just isn't possible. <laughs> or we like to think it is impossible because we like to think that other people are more miserable than we are. Yeah. I was looking around this studio to see if anyone had the pallor of a nymphomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> but I only oh saw God. conspicuous dishes. Oh my, yeah, right. Out. There you go. It, no, it's it, the turns of phrase are uh, so incredible. What's the one that he says? Where is the source of the sorrow? You know, it, I mean, <laughs> just such incredible language yeah, in this piece. And I, I think he assumes that everyone hearing this story will be thinking. There's got to be something wrong somewhere. They cannot be that happy and that contented. And I was just thinking back to the enormous radio and thinking, you know, when I was hearing these people talk and when Irene was saying to Jim, we're not like that, are we? We're not like that. I found that I really was hoping that they weren't. Yeah. I really was hoping that they weren't. Well, but that would 
that would be quite an exception, wouldn't it? Now we get back to the notion of the American dream, because don't we all believe in it? I mean, the reason that these stories or or Lorraine Hansberry's take on it, uh, any of them are so potent to us is because we believe it. We believe that it's true. And I, I don't think we would go on or could go on, particularly in the the historical moment that we're in right now, if we didn't believe that it was true on some level. Um, and these people in the, 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 the worm and the apple are the quintessence of good things happening to good people. And you do hope that yeah. that's true. And how you deal with setbacks. You, uh, he repeats a year in school. Right. They get married. They're three months uh, you know, pregnant. Um, but the way they deal with it is so healthy and, and filled yeah. with hope and moving forward. And yeah. that's our time now. I mean, we're in a very yeah. difficult time. But everybody has new hope. It certainly is a change from the enormous radio. So you think Cheever has <laughs> renewed uh, uh, you know, belief in the American dream? I, I don't know. I mean, he's he's always a little bit gimlet-eyed. And I, gosh, <laughs> I don't know when I've been able to use that turn of phrase in conversation before, but I'm really happy that I just got to. But he is always <laughs> draw. Thank you. Uh, he always is a little bit gimlet-eyed about the uh, the world. Uh, you know, even in the worm and the apple, um, while the the Chapmans are the model family, the things do happen mm. to them, and they do hit road bumps and and even that final sentence and they lived happily 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 <laughs> happily yeah. not ever after right you know it ends before we get to ever after so you can't he's not he's not um he's not an optimist or a uh, he he's not able to just throw out his cynicism but you know, maybe he does. I don't know, Bob. Interesting question. Mm. Well, he seems to be looking at the no nosy neighbors now, the <laughs> yes. problems that they have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Mm. Well, you've been listening to Trinity Rep Radio Theater, and you can hear this program again and find archive programs at WRNI.org. This program was directed by Janice Duclos and featured members of Trinity Rep's resident acting company, Fred Sullivan Jr., Rachel Warren, and Janice Duclos, performing stories by John Cheever. The Autobiography of a Drummer, The Enormous Radio, and The Worm and the Apple, copyright 2000 by Mary W. Cheever, used it with permission of the Wiley Agency, LLC. Trinity Rep Radio Theater is a production of WRNI and Trinity Repertory Company. Janice Duclos and Emily Atkinson Producers, Kurt Columbus Executive Producer, Joe O'Connor General Manager, and Jim Moses, Sound Engineer. Please join us again next month. I'm Bob C.